This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For many millennials dealing with student loans and just starting out in their careers, investing might seem out of reach. Not so, according to our next guest, Erin Lowry, who is founder of the website BrokeMillennial.com. Erin, who is self-employed, and her husband, who's a public school teacher, and both are in their 20s, paid off 17000 in student loans in under a year. We didn't mention, though, that they live in New York as well. She has a new book which advises other millennials how they can take control of their finances, deal with debt, and invest in a way that meets their financial goals while remaining true to their socially responsible values. The book is titled Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, a Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. And a pleasure to have Erin in studio with us. Nice meeting you. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, I mean, let's start with the idea of starting Broke Millennial overall, not just the book, but the website, the blog, the entire situation, because it, it does seem like one of the stories that is out there surrounding millennials these days is how they're dealing with college debt, but also how they are trying to deal with their finances early on in their careers so that they are prepared for retirement 40 years down the line. That's the hope. And for me, it all started almost exactly six years ago as, at, at the point, a blog. And I started it because I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that talked about money all the time. Right. And what you grow up around is normal. So I kind of assumed everyone talked about money and had this kind of base-level financial literacy. Right. Now, keep in mind, I was a journalism and theater major in college. Business was not my path. And yeah. so I still felt in control. And when I moved to New York, I was only earning $23,000 my first year there, hustling at three different jobs. But I I still felt that kind of in-control sensation. And then I started to realize, oh, a lot of people don't feel this way. And right. I wanted to do something about it. So I started the website as a way for me to share stories about what my parents had done to teach me about money, what I was learning, kind of school of hard knocks. Right. And I was very narrative in a way that I hoped would, I like to say, trick people into learning about money. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's an important component here because I, I don't think it's necessarily just exclusively millennials. There are so many people out there that really don't think about investing on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, obviously, some of those are people that may not to a degree, have the means really to do the investment. They have to worry about their families and, and living day to day. But there is a lack of understanding, I think, in many cases about what investing is and how you go about it. And the biggest misunderstanding, I believe, is that people don't consider themselves an investor if they have a retirement plan, right. especially if that's a 401k, 403b, or even just an IRA. People don't connect that in their brain as, oh, I'm investing. Right. And that's one thing I would love to change the language we use because we say save for retirement, and that's a misnomer. You are investing for retirement. And I think okay. that simple language shift really can make more people feel empowered to be an investor even outside of retirement. Okay, so the book, the idea for the book then comes off of this to a degree, your experiences, but also just the, the, this understanding or lack of understanding at times of what really the, the investment culture is. Well, and part of it is my first book was just a comprehensive, here's how to get your financial life together style book. It's just right. called Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. And right. at the end, there's a short chapter on investing. And at the bottom of that chapter, I was like, hey, if you want to learn some more, here are some great books. And I started to get emails from people who said, hey, checked out some of those books you recommended. And I'll be honest, even though it says it's for beginners on the front, this still feels too complicated. Right. 
And it's true. A lot of what's out there, it kind of assumed you have a base level understanding of the markets that a lot of us don't. It's not something we're ever taught in school. A lot of parents don't communicate about it. And I wanted to write a book that I felt really took you back to the very beginning. And I'm not an investing expert. I talk about that right at the top. But I interviewed a bunch of very smart people who are. And I like to position myself as the translator. So then uh, when you when you relate this book and what you've written in this book to people that may not be as as savvy around investing, what are maybe one or two of the key components you think are, are the most important that they really need to think about? Honestly, the language, I think, is one of the number one things. And that's such a big intimidation factor for folks is the way we talk about investing, terms we use, even something as, and I'll say the word basic, as index fund. A lot of people don't know what that means. So if you say, oh, just go, you know, invest in some basic index funds, they don't know where to go. They don't know how to start. They don't even know what it is. So getting that common language down and then continuing to reiterate the tried and true principles of starting early, being consistent, and why time is so important and why you should start when you're young. I also really like to push the fact that life tends to get more complicated, not less. And so sometimes we have this, you know, misbelief that, hey, I'm 25. I'm not making much now when I'm 35. I'm going to have it together. At that point, I'll have the extra (laughs) money to start investing. Well, you might be making a lot more money, but you also might be married. You might own a house. You might have some kids. Life's more expensive. Doesn't mean you're going to have a ton more to throw into the market. Yeah, but there is also the misconception realistically out there that, that investing is really for those that have the means. And and that's a, that's a, something that I think a lot of people have to get by. And it's probably an assumption that that is is a, a negative to people that may be in the middle class or maybe a little bit l- lower off that you can still find money to invest, but maybe not at the same levels as as the rich do. One of the taglines I'm actually using for this book that's on all the stickers and branding is time to shake the misconception that investing is just for the wealthy. Right. And I do think that is a fundamental thing we're fighting against. And sometimes, unfortunately, with things like minimum initial investments, it can feel very out of reach for people who don't have $3,000 to just throw in. But there's other steps you can take. And there are also brokerages that are starting to offer no minimum funds and options to get you started. Uh, many people out there listening to us, as you mentioned, will have a 401k, 403b. Uh, and to a degree, that has that has taken over a level of, of the old pension community. And we talked about it uh, earlier in the fact that pensions right now are a, a program that has lost some entity lately, but they're still out there. You bring up the question of whether or not with the 401k, can you... Can you only live on a 401k or do you need to look at other kind of investment tools? Well, and part of that, too, is everyone continues to talk about, will Social Security be around when I'm older? And, you know, if you want to be conservative about it, assume it's not. And then if it is, great. You still get some extra money. I do think it's ideal to be investing in taxable accounts outside of retirement for a variety of reasons. And one of that is you probably have shorter term goals then retirement, that investing is really going to help you out on, especially if it's 15 to 20 years away as opposed to 30 to 40 years away. You don't want to just be saving. You should also be investing for those goals. One of the other areas that that you discuss, and and it's important because it has really come on, I think, the the forefront in the last handful of years, maybe a decade, is the idea of social investing. And there is a growing realm of people that want to do investments, but they also want it to have a social component to it. And and I think that's an important thing to bring up because of the fact that maybe not enough people know how prevalent this is becoming right now. 
There are options, especially when you look at different robo-advisors and different brokerages that focus almost exclusively on impact investing. So that is something that if in your mind this is your barrier and you feel like, oh, I don't want to start because there's too many unethical companies I don't want to invest in, impact investing, socially responsible investing, ESG-compliant funds, depending on where your metric is, where your line in the sand is, are all options for you to check out. The other thing, too, I always like to point out is you collectively have a voice with other people especially just with a brokerage. If there is a particular company that you want taken out of a fund, Mm -hmm. you can all rally together and quite possibly get a company removed. So just remember, I think one thing is people like to compare investing to gambling. It's not because (laughs) when you put down money at a blackjack table, you don't own a piece of the Bellagio. And do remember when you are an investor, you have a voice, you have a say, you own a small piece of the company. And people will listen if you collectively work together. We're joined here in studio by Aaron Lowry, who is the uh, author of the book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You mentioned robo-advisors, so let's delve into that for a second, because there is the decision that some people have to make about whether or not to go with a robo-advisor or to go with a traditional advisor. Where do you stand on that? Or to be the do-it-yourself investor, which is how a lot of people start, especially with the discount brokerages, which sounds a lot shadier than it actually is. I kind of hate that term. Well, I think ultimately, and this is really, it's true of anything related to your money, it's about the value that it brings to you. You're going to be paying a fee for all of these different services, and you need to be doing the math and actually seeing, hey, is the fee that I am paying worth the return that I am getting, the value that I'm getting from this service? And I particularly think it's very important to look with investing because every dollar you're paying in a fee is a dollar less that's compounding for your future. Looking down also to the nitty-gritty if you're do-it-yourself or at expense ratios and making sure that you are paying the least amount in fees that you can to make sure for maximum growth. I do think robo-advisors or a traditional financial planner can certainly be of help, particularly if you're just getting started and feel very overwhelmed and don't know how to begin, how to build your portfolio. You also are looking at things like it's probably rebalancing on a more regular basis than you would be doing. It's looking at tax loss harvesting. You might not be doing that by yourself. So there definitely can be some added value. I also like something as simple as when we go through a market correction or even a recession, you usually start to get emails from them that say things like, don't panic. It'll be okay. We have prepared for this. This is why it's balanced the way it is. You're aligned with your time horizon and your goals. And something as simple as that really does help people. Well, I find it interesting that it's also just making sure that you're getting the right advice in general, because we've also gone through that kind of cycle as well of whether or not people are getting the right advice or if some of the advisors that may be giving them are really doing it because the fees that they're getting. It's true. And you do need to know very well how your advisor is getting paid, especially if there's a commission involved in any part of the process. You know, are they putting things in your portfolio that just adhere to suitability? So, you know, it's not harmful to you, but it's not the best. Really, you want to be working with a fiduciary anytime you'll work with someone. And I also think with the robo-advisors, I interviewed someone for the book who did say he wants to pivot that and call it online financial advisors because it <laughs> there's this, you know, belief that, oh, they've got this special algorithm and it's going to beat the market. And he goes, humans are involved the entire step of the way, first yeah. of all. You can even be partnered with a financial advisor depending on how much is invested. And the other thing is... 
we've had, he says, when I say we, referring to what he was quoting, that people will email in when the market goes down and say, I thought you knew how to handle this. Why is it going down? He goes, that's not how it works. You're still going to see markets go up and down. We can't totally beat it. Otherwise, you know, they'd be worth billions and billions and billions and have solved the problem of the stock market, quote unquote. Yeah, you've got the the old bias against robots in the Hollywood genre (laughs) from years gone by. Aaron Lowry, our guest, uh, author of Broke Millennial, takes on investing. You can also follow her at BrokeMillennial.com. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So somebody gets out of college. They've got $20,000 of student loans that they have to deal with. How do they need to consider the balance between getting those student loans paid off and trying to make the, the, the start of the investment process really work out? So the two things to consider here are what's your access to start investing. For a lot of people, that is your 401k or a 403b or an IRA. Right. Especially if you have an employer match, it is very important to try to at least put in enough money to get the full match. Yeah. But for some people, they don't have the flexibility in their budget to even do that. What I like to advise in that particular scenario is that you put in a percent because I promise you barely notice the difference in your paycheck. And at least you're still getting a match at 1%, yeah. depending on how generous your company is, maybe even more. And then every six months, try to push it up by another percent sure. until you get to at least the full match. Yeah. And then you're still contending with your student loans in tandem. Now, once you get to a point where maybe there's a bit more flexibility in your budget, you're putting more into your 401k, you want to be investing in a taxable account outside of that, you have to do the math on the interest rates. Right. Now, across the board, the people that I interviewed almost exclusively said 5% being their cutoff. If your interest rates on your student loans were above 5%, probably made a little more sense to actually put money towards paying them down faster than focus on taxable investing. Under 5%, well, you know, what's your risk tolerance, your debt tolerance? You could probably balance them in together. Right. But then then if you're able to get to a point, hopefully in a relatively quick fashion, that you're able to get a handle on the student loans and and you're more focused on that retirement money, then you can look at not only having the match – whether it be 5%, 3%, whatever the, the, the company will max out at. But you, it, there's nothing that will stop you from going above that yourself and putting more money away. You may only get, if you go 10%, you may get 5% match, but still you're putting more money away for, for down the road. Absolutely. And if they can max out at $19,000 a year as of 2019, yeah. great. Yeah. And I do think that's an interesting piece of the conversation. And one thing that I liked talking to when I was speaking to the experts for the book is generally the advice is max out, max out, max out. Yeah. And I also like to kind of look at the shades of gray of, okay, but when does it actually make sense to also be putting money in a taxable account if I have a shorter term goal than retirement? Yeah. And kind of looking a little bit at that balance. But yes, of course, you want to be putting as much into the retirement account as you can, you've got to be thinking about future you as well. One of the other things you talk about is the technology side of this. Uh, and obviously, there's the robo side. But there are also uh, a variety of different apps out there that are are providing ability of people to be able to do the right types of investing out there. There are apps. And that's also a great way for people to get started if they feel like they can't put enough away to open a traditional brokerage account, perhaps because of a minimum initial investment. Now, the one thing that I do like to always caution about the apps is there is a fee. And that fee often sounds super low. It's around a dollar to three dollars, depending on which service you're using. And I live in New York City, as you mentioned. I can't even do a load of laundry for a (laughs) dollar. So that feels like a great deal to get me to start investing. Except if you're only doing a few bucks a month, 
it's eating all of your returns, possibly even then some. So the rule of thumb I like to advise is at least $25 to $50 needs to be going into the app, have it on an automatic contribution. You can double down with the Roundup or whatever kind of nifty gimmick they have within the app to make it be a little bit more. But you need to be more serious than just 5 bucks a month. And and there is something to be said about the fact of, of just, if you can, set it up. And not really realistically have to worry about it. Because I I think for some people, if you worry about the fact that, oh, I need to make sure that this $50 is coming out every month or 25, whatever it is, then they're, they're adding a level of angst to their life. If it's automatically being deducted in advance before you even see your paycheck hit the bank account, you don't worry about it as much. Automating makes so much sense in so much of our financial lives, and it does make it a lot easier. And most of these apps do have the option to set up some form of automatic contribution, which is great. I also like that most of them have a strong educational component. It really is geared towards rookies. And so there are either blogs or they have little pop-ups along the way to try to help educate you about what you're doing. One of the other things you talk about, which I don't think a lot of people discuss, is the process of selling an investment, which uh, I think a lot of people are like, Really? Sell it? How do I how do I do that? Well, it depends on how you're investing. And I think the big thing, of course, is to always be thinking about what are the tax implications of making that move, which I obviously cannot give you generic advice right Right, now about what that's going to look like for you. But that was a funny part of the process of writing the book. I actually went through it myself. A lot of things that were happening in the book, for example, I had never purchased an individual stock before writing this. I was strictly an index fund investor. And I realized, well, if I'm going to write about it, I probably should go through the process of doing it. And around that same time, I got married and I I decided to sell one of my investments in order to put a lump sum towards my husband's student loans. And like, oh, I need to explain how to sell because I've never gone through this process myself. And you have to decide what the timing's going to be, how you're going to sell it, what the tax implications are. There's a lot to think about. Joined by Aaron Lowry, uh, author uh, of the book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, you also talk about the, the, the concern, and this kind of goes back to the advice issue, uh, but the potential of scams and, and how people need to kind of be watchful for that. You do. And I think this is particularly true with investing. And a lot of it, too, ties back to this idea of any time we see an investing scam, that obviously gets a lot of traction in the media. Thinking, of course, of something like a Bernie Madoff situation, which fortunately for younger investors, there is all sorts of regulations that came out that makes it much less likely for us that that's going to happen again. But I know a lot of people have fears of things like robo-advisors or apps because their thought is, well, what happens if this company goes under? What happens to my investments? So it's very important first to explain that just because that particular company goes under doesn't mean your investments go under. You're going to just in-kind transfer somewhere else. So that's one of the first things. But it's very interesting, you know, talking to the experts and asking about this. And a lot of people said it's such cliche advice, but trust your gut. You, If it smells wrong to you, it probably is. If you're going through a traditional brokerage, it's not that's not who you have to worry about. You really do need to worry about your buddy on the street who's got a great idea and this is yeah. going to be the next big thing. And of course, also kind of untested asset classes and it's an easy thing to throw under the bus, but cryptocurrency being a great example right now. How often do you get the conversation and and probably some of this came within with putting in the the book together but also with the uh, Broke Millennial website, but how often do you get the conversation of boys, you know, so and so I know has done really well on his investments. 
you know, he's got, you know, $750,000 in in his brokerage account. And I have no idea how he's pulling this off. And and everybody's kind of looking for that secret sauce out there. And the truth is there's not. It's just starting early, being consistent, rebalancing your portfolio, all the boring stuff. Now, of course, there's going to be outliers, Yeah, obviously. And one of the examples that I really liked was somebody said getting into emerging markets, not just for investing, but also in your career. So yeah. whether that's companies, whether that's countries, that's a really good way people take risk that often can pay off. But yeah. in that particular instance, too, I had my own shoeshine boy moment that everybody likes to reference where, you know, you knew the depression was coming when your shoeshine boy started giving you stock tips. I was actually at the dentist and the dentist who I love how they try to make conversation when their hands are in your mouth. It's always a really fun experience. That is fun. Yes. And he'd ask, you know, what do you do? And it's always kind of hard to explain. I was like, oh, I write about money. That's just the easy way to explain it. And he goes, oh, what are your feelings on cryptocurrency? I'm really into cryptocurrency. And I was like, ah, when your dentist is giving you advice on cryptocurrency, that's when you know something's about to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What is your expectation then uh, with the, the concept of having a better understanding of investing around millennials, because th- there has been quite a lot of conversation around the education piece, uh, especially with younger kids uh, when they come up through middle school and high school of having better financial literacy education so that they can be prepared for college and they can be more prepared for when they uh, get out and get that first job. It seems like it is an incredibly important component that needs to be addressed and probably plays to a degree off of what you write in the book about things that maybe millennials do not know. It does. And I would love if we had financial literacy happening in school when we're younger. Problem is, I think a lot of people, it doesn't actually connect for them until they're in the lived experience. And at that point, one thing that's great now is there are so many different resources between radio, podcasting, books, TV shows, magazines, blogs, social media. There are so many different ways to be connecting with people and for people to learn. One thing that I would like to see as a very simple thing to do is have it be opt out on a 401k instead of opt in. Have it be hmm. just automatic that contributions yeah. are going into your retirement plan unless you choose to do otherwise. Because you do have a lot of that kind of inertia where people are like, oh, I mean, I remember logging in and trying to figure out how to build a portfolio for a 401k. And I just kind of freaked out and clicked out and walked away from it because I didn't know what any of it meant. Yeah. And there was no one there to explain it to me. Now, yeah. I was fortunate I could call my parents, but not everyone has that situation. So even if there's just a dedicated person that, you know, it doesn't have to be in the office, but that you know who to call it, perhaps the brokerage where your 401k is set up so you can just talk through it with someone. I never personally went through having any sort of guidance in that way. And I wish that we offered that to everyone. One of the things you do at the end of the book is you ask readers to set a goal for themselves for the next year. Uh, And I think that's an important component because you want to, from the book's perspective, you've given all of this information, but you want to make it real. You want to have people start to think about this process right from the last page of the book. I do. And I say a year, which is such a short term in terms of investing. But the reason I say a year is because then you can break it down into much more actionable pieces. And I really want every month, every day, that you're taking one very small step to move towards being a more confident investor. I even, for the book, for people who pre-ordered, had this 30-day rookie investor action plan that each day is just one very small step that you can take to get you towards feeling more confident. And it could be as simple as just looking up an expense ratio on an index fund, and I explain what that means within the context of this, just so you have an idea of where to look and what that looks like and how to do the math on what that actually means for your money. But it it seems like it's almost as simple as just being able to want to have the conversation 
about it. It is. If you're if you're able to get through that barrier, then you've taken a huge first step to whatever success you're going to have in investing. And being able to talk about money is, to me, one of the biggest barriers that we have right now is we need to feel more comfortable talking about it. And I think especially with investing, people don't want to feel stupid ever. And you have to admit a lot of the time, hey, I don't know what that means. Could you please explain it for me? And I was very lucky writing this book that I got to sit down with professionals and they would say a word and I would say, I'm going to pause you right there. Could you explain that for me? I remember tax loss harvesting being a big one for me where somebody (laughs) mentioned it and I went, I have tried to figure this out by myself. Can you succinctly explain this for me? And I won't say it was succinct, but it did get explained in a way that I was like, okay, this is starting to make sense now. And especially with investing, sometimes you either have to reread or rehear concepts over and over, or you need to learn something else because a lot of things are all built on each other. So until you have this really basic understanding of something, you're not going to understand the next piece. And I think if we just keep communicating about it more, it's going to make it better for everyone. How much of a better investor do you think you are after having gone through and written this book? Definitely a lot more confident, I will say. I... Still would not be dabbling in individual stock picking outside of the one that I experimentally purchased for the book. But I do definitely feel more comfortable just having the conversations. But I think there's still always an element of imposter syndrome to a degree, especially that's one I always say up top. I'm not an expert. I'm the translator. Sure, right. Because it is important for me to for people to understand that. And the book is definitely written in a way where that's clear, where I'm saying I'm relying on all of these super smart people. I'm also young. I'm 29. I've had pretty much just a bull market. So I needed people who had experienced a lot more of the ups and downs to weigh in as opposed to it's been great for a while. Why don't you join me? How much? How many times have you heard the term buying on the dip in, oh. the, in the last few years, right? Quite a few. Yeah. And it's also one of my favorite things to tweet anytime there's a tiny little blip to be like, it's a fire sale. Don't panic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that and that is that that is one of the, the big hurdles that you have to get past. Great meeting you. Good luck with the book. Good luck with the website and uh, enjoy uh, enjoy living in New York City. Thanks for coming down here to Philadelphia. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Aaron Lowry. The book is Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. It's available in bookstores and online for your purchase now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 